Hi, this is Chris Westfall, and this is the Financial Executive Podcast. When it comes to public company disclosures, the statement of cash flows does not receive a great amount of attention. Seemingly a straightforward accounting of a company's cash position, many preparers and investors spend more time debating the makeup of the balance sheet or the income statement. But for CounterPoint Global's Michael Mapbasson, anyone that treats cash flow statements as an afterthought is making a mistake. In his new research piece titled Categorizing for Clarity, he argues that the cash flow statement needs to be completely overhauled to keep pace with ways that companies absorb and pay out their cash positions. In this episode, we speak to Mr. Mapbasson about his proposals, which you can find in the episode's show notes, and the issues that a confused cash flow statement brings up for both preparers and investors. Thanks. Thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Um, I, I wanted to sort of, I came across your research report and found it very interesting and, and you brought up a lot of questions and issues, especially around our membership uh, and what they're thinking about from the preparer side, from the people who actually prepare the statements. But um, I, I want to get it, maybe Michael, you can start off with a little bit about your background and and, and, and your firm and, and your work. I think you're at Morgan Stanley right now, or is that, how would you phrase that? Yeah, so I'm, I'm part of a firm called Counterpoint Global, which is part of Morgan Stanley Investment Management. So we're a large, long-only mutual fund complex. We also do some private investing as well. And uh, I really do a few things. One is I work with our team to help work on investment process to try to be more effective investors every day. Um, second is I try to do research. Hopefully that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And then third is I do external things like client meetings and conferences and so forth. Um, my background is uh, I was a government major in college and <laughs> never studied accounting or right. business or anything like that. And I came onto Wall Street and was really overwhelmed candidly by um, the, you know, the, I would call them old wives tales and rules of thumb and all these sort of all the jargon that seemed to be conventional. And, uh, I, in the late 1980s, uh, was given a copy of the book, creating shareholder value by Al Rappaport. Now Al was for many years, three decades at Northwestern school of management. Um, he's an extraordinary guy. We went on to collaborate on, we've collaborated on a lot of stuff, including a recent book and uh, Al was trained as an accountant, but he really crossed over to accounting, finance, and strategy. Mm. And when I read his book, that was my that was my professional epiphany. And there were three things he talked about, Chris. I think that would be relevant for your audience. First is it's always about cash, not accounting numbers. And I know that we all try to understand the true economics of the business. Right. Um, and he emphasized that. The second thing was that. Competitive strategy analysis and valuation really have to go together. So when we're thinking about the value of our business, we have to think about our competitive positioning within the industry and so forth. And and really the litmus test of a strategy that's good is that it creates value, of course. And then the third thing is is stock prices reflect a set of expectations, which is also important for executives to understand. So those have been sort of the animating features. I've spent a lot of my career as, as an analyst, as a strategist. But broadly speaking, I most mostly spend my time thinking about investment process. And the last thing I'll mention is for the, I guess in, in January of 2022, it'll be my 30th consecutive year of teaching security analysis at Columbia Business School. Right. So I teach a course in essentially how to invest. Mm-hmm. And many of the things we'll talk about today, I suspect, are topics that come up in trying to help the students 
understand businesses better through the numbers. Yeah, uh, all important points. And like I, you know, just you mentioned and I discussed, um, you know, our audience is, has a very particular point of view um, on, especially on a way financial information is reported, and and that sort of prompted my outreach to you know get your thoughts on because your your recent report, um, your research note on called categorizing for clarity. Um, you know, really uh, came out um, very specific thoughts on the way cash flow is reported to investors. So I, I wanted, before we get into details, but what prompted the report? Was it something? And that, the first, yeah, go ahead. Go, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I'm, I apologize. Um, I mean, I guess the first thing I would say is that it's interesting when you look at surveys of financial executives and their financial reporting. Um, the number one metric is always earnings per share. Right. And uh, I've always been a fairly sharp critic of earnings. And I think earnings have always been somewhat suspect. And even today, probably more suspect than ever before. So we can talk about some of those reasons. And so as a consequence, I've been just sort of looking at how companies invest, how the businesses work. I think many people in the financial community focus a lot on the income statement and balance sheet. And as you know, the, the statement of cash flows wasn't required for public companies in the United States in the current form mm. until the late 1980s. So it's a relatively new kid on the block and it tends to get less attention. And so the argument we were trying to make was what you want to do is understand the categories appropriately. And it turns out for whatever uh, historical sets of reasons, uh, a bunch of items show up in weird spots that don't give you the insights I think you want to get. So yeah, classifying for clarity is just to say, let's make sure we're thinking about things in the right buckets so that we understand the fundamental economic proposition of what this company is doing. So I found the statement of cash flows is actually one of my favorite statements is always, always has been, but uh, remains. And, and, and by the way, the other thing I'll just mention as a side note is interestingly, those companies that do talk about free cash flow, the most conventional definition is cash flow from operations mm -hmm. minus capital expenditures. And that is not a finance term at all. You won't find that in any finance textbook because that's not how you do valuation. But even that number, um, as you'll, as we'll talk about, I'm sure in some detail, can be extremely distorted. And so I just think there was a lot of, there's a big uh, difference between economic reality and the presentation in the financial statements. And I just want to do some, take some steps to close that, close that gap. So I, I guess my first question is like, what prompted this? I mean, was it something you saw recently or has it built building up over time? What, what, what prompted you to write this research report? Right Definitely now? building up, Chris. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Definitely building up. And I'll say that what I've been, uh, I've been a little bit obsessed by in the last couple of years. And I should go back and say there was um, a paper in 2018 in Management Science by Lumanita, Lumanita Anake and Anup Shravastava about um, SGNA investments. Mm. And the argument or the question was something like more and more companies are investing in SGNA. Uh, and we expense those investments. And so there's a maintenance piece and an investment piece. And so taking one step back, the important observation, and this is within my career, right? Mm. We've had a complete flip in investment intensity. So it was the case in the 1970s 
that tangible investment was double that of intangible investment. Tangible is physical things, obviously. So machines and factories and trucks and so forth. And intangible investments are things that are by definition, non-physical. So branding and training and Hmm. writing software code and so forth are now double those of tangible. And so the problem is we record tangible assets on the balance sheet. And for the most part, we record intangible investments on the income statement. Mm. So now we're conflating uh, these investment components and, and that's obsessed me. So to some degree, can we untangle the investment components to better understand what I call the, I called it one job, which is the one job of investors to understand the basic unit of economic analysis. And you need to untangle that in order to understand that. So, so to me, that's been a little bit of the passion. And so many of the, like this report in particular, There are a number of pieces to it, but I think the centerpiece and perhaps the most significant is uh, the reckoning for intangible assets, intangible investments, right? And then we use it as our case study, Amazon.com, but you can imagine that that applies to to many, many companies uh, today. Um, One comment I'll make is interesting. So we have today roughly a record number of companies losing money. So um, greater than costs and revenues. And as I like to say, you can lose money for the old fashioned reason, right? Because expenses are greater than revenues, or you can lose money for the, for the new reason, right? Which is that you're investing heavily in a value creating um, set of investments, um, but they are all getting expensed. And as a consequence, your balance sheet looks in quotes light, um, but you're doing things that are value creating. And I always like to point out that Walmart, you know, which is one of the great businesses in the history of America had negative free cash flow for the first 15 years it was public. Hmm. So in other words, it invested more than it earned. It so happens that its investments were all on the balance sheet, primarily in the form of stores and inventories and so forth. So in a sense, they were in quotes, losing money. But of course, if the return on investment is high on the investment, you want to knock yourself out and do as much of it as possible. So I just think we're getting, and, and then investors tend to use historical metrics and today versus the past and so forth. And we really are comparing apples and oranges. And so my motivation has been to try to shed some light on some of these topics. And by the way, the intangible thing is the wild west, right? Because we don't really know how to segregate uh, intangible investment versus maintenance uh, intangibles. We don't really know how to think about appropriate amortization periods or asset lives of these intangibles. So so there's a lot of uncompleted work that needs to be done. uh, But I think we're taking the steps, we're taking steps toward reality, steps toward truth. And, and do you think that is simply because, you know, this dynamic changed because the economy changed? It changed from yeah. uh, manufacturing to a more, you know, more technology, more, you know, things that rely more on intangible assets? It's precisely. And I think that's there's I think there's no question about that. And the numbers certainly bear that out. And even if you were to scan, for example, the top 10 most valuable companies in the United States, versus say 30 or 40 years ago, you would just see a very different list. Um, in fact, I did that exercise um, for, for t- the 20 years from 1921, from 2021 to 2001. And uh, you know, the, the companies back in 2001 that were the largest by market capitalization included General Electric and a lot of the pharmaceutical companies, and although they have some intangible pieces, and a lot of it was energy companies, mm-hmm. right? Which are very physical. And today is predominantly uh, intangible based companies. So you think about the Facebooks and the Microsofts of the world are, are at the, uh, Apple to, to a large degree, by the way, they outsource a lot of their physical activities. So they're largely a, a capital light business. 
So it's a totally different, it's a totally different setup versus a generation or two before. So let's get a little bit specific. Uh, and uh, as I said, I mean, I, I read through the report, there's a lot there, but um, let's talk about some of the specific changes. The first being stock-based compensation. Uh, why do you think that current method um, is, isn't correct or, or how would you change that? In terms of the right, so the first thing I, I mean, I always get a chuckle, and I put a line in the report. I hope you saw it that seemed pretty funny. It was from the the head of the FASB at the time that basically said, if you know, if companies had to expense options, it would be the end of Western civilization. <laughs> or something to that effect. It was all the lobbying groups were like, oh, the world's going to end. You know, our stocks going to be down forty percent, so forth. And of course, it was a complete non-factor, mostly because those those data were that information was all re- reflected in the financial statements, and the market sniffed it all out mm, to some degree. Right. Um, so, so the first thing to say is, of course, option uh, stock-based compensation is appropriately expense on the income statement. So that was a problem for many, many years. That's gotten cleaned up, and mm-hmm. that's good. The weird thing is that we added back now to cash flow from operations mm-hmm. on the cash flow statements. And you know what? What I argue is intellectually that stock-based compensation is effectively two transactions in one. One is you're issuing equity. And you're using that equity as remuneration for your employees, as compensation for service. So it would be akin to going to some investment bank, selling stock or selling options, taking that money and then giving it to your employee. It's a little bit more complicated because they're investing periods and so on and so forth. But basically, that's the principle. So as a consequence, what I argue is that's not really an operating activity. That really should be a financing activity. Mm. And of course, Consistent with that, you know, if you're issuing equity, your share count's going to go up and so on and so forth. So the first big reclassification is simply moving uh, stock-based compensation from net cash provided by operating activities and moving it down to net cash provided by or used by financing activities. So that's the intellectual idea there. Mm-hmm. And the numbers are not significant, by the way. Right. Not, I mean, pardon me, they're not insignificant. And, and uh, it doesn't matter that much typically for certain types of businesses and certainly very big businesses. But when you're talking about young companies, you can see SBC be a very high percent of their in quotes cash flow from operations and it's an ad back. So it's just really, it would be like saying we're losing tons of money, but we're raising a lot of equity. So our cash flow from operations is great. Okay, it just doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. So that's the first, I think, uh, the first sensible one. Again, I, I, I want to be clear that I'm not against stock-based compensation. I think it can right. be done properly, be done improperly. So I'm not saying it's, I'm not, I'm not advocating for it or advocating against it, but um, I just think it's in the wrong place in terms of the statement of cash flow. So, so no st- statement about SBC per se, but rather uh, where should we think about it appropriately in our cash flow statements? Do you think, well, um, let me ask you this question. Do you think, I mean, there's a difference between, um, you know, the, I guess end users of of financial uh, statements, right? There is the, you know, there's a Wall Street analyst and there's you know the everyday investors. Are you saying that it's these sort of like whether it's cash flow, cash flow or anything else, um, these distortions are sending the wrong signals um, to um, everyday investors or to professional investors? I mean, does that make sense to you? It does. I mean, it depends how much you believe in market efficiency. And I'm more in the efficient market camp than I'm not. So I would argue something like if if these data are reflected in financial statements that the market is going to digest right. now, you can, or there might be some studies that show on the margin that may or may not be true. But I think that for the most part, that's correct. Mm-hmm. 
That said, I think as an investor, it's really important, or even as an employee or any kind of investor, institutional or individual, it's important to understand what you're getting yourself into. Yeah. So I do. I, I'm not saying that. Um, I'm not saying that, that you're you're going to be doing something that's going to allow you to come to a radically different conclusion. Although we might talk about when we tally up all these changes, what it means, for example, for Amazon's right. financials. But that said, um, but I, I, I just think it's helpful to think about it the proper way. And again, it's capital raising effectively, right? Because you're you're raising, you're issuing equity yeah. to pay people. You're raising capital. <laughs> Since 1931, Financial Executives International has been the leading advocate for the views of corporate financial management. Its more than 10,000 members hold policy-making positions as chief financial officers, chief accounting officers, controllers and treasurers at companies from every major industry. And FEI enhances its members' professional development through peer networking, career management services, conferences, research, and publications. Join FEI today to network with key influencers, understand emerging issues, advocate for corporate finance, and boost your career opportunities. Both individual and corporate membership options are available. Go to www.financialexecutives.org and click on Become a Member, or look for the link in this episode's show notes. So another point is, so, so if I understand it correctly, you should also suggest combining purchase and lease activities and no longer breaking them out. Um, what is your argument for that? And what does it mean for preparers that are still going through sort of a massive change when it comes to the way leases are treated? Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, the, the fact that we've had to reflect leases on balance sheets is a relatively new development, as you know, last mm -hmm. couple of years or so. And, you know, the, I think intellectually, the way to think about it is I can make an investment. I think in the, in the report, I think I talked about, you know, I'm the purchaser of aircraft for an airline, for instance. And every day I look at whether I should purchase the aircraft or whether I should lease the aircraft. Mm -hmm. And of course, those markets tend to be pretty efficient as well, right? Because they, they, they're arbitraged. As, and, and, and most airlines do both, by the way. And when one's more advantageous than the other, they do, they do whatever is most advantageous. What's weird is when you buy an asset, it shows up in uh, net cash provided by or used by investing activities, which makes sense because you're investing in an aircraft. But if you lease it, it shows up in financing activities, mm -hmm. which also do doesn't really seem to make a ton of sense, right? In a sense, you're doing the same thing. So yeah, we just argue that that should be reclassified as an investment because an investor, what I want to understand, and even as an executive, candidly, what I want to understand is how much money is this company investing today and then I need to make a judgment about what the returns will be in the future. And without understanding that dollar sum of the investments today, it's difficult for me to anticipate the future, right? And, and there should be, in financial statements, obviously, there's a component of helping investors and outsiders make some, having some predictive value to some degree. So that's one I think also makes just enormous amounts of sense when you think about it that way. And then you can think about the extremes, right? You might imagine company A, company B, and company C, right? So company A just, per let's say they're all retailers. Company A purchases all their stores. Company B does a mix of buy, uh, buys and, and leases, and then company C leases, right? Mm -hmm. And they're all identical in every other way. All of a sudden, their, their statements of cash flows, even though they're identical in every other way, look completely different, even though they're doing the fundamentally the same thing. So that's the basic intellectual argument for placing it all as an investment. 
So another part, another proposal you have is around uh, the treatment of intangible assets. Sort of describe, you know, how you think they should be treated as a cash flow state in the cash flow statement. Yeah, and this is the big daddy, right? Yeah. This is the big daddy. So very much to your point that increasingly um, companies are investing on their income statement. It typically, so cost of goods sold goes with revenue. So we're not going to touch that. And even in the case of Amazon, they had fulfillment costs, which we didn't touch that as well. So there's SGNA that's associated with things like sales and marketing and research and development and so on and so forth. Now, I mean, you probably know this whole story, but you know, research and development is an interesting case in and of itself because 1973 mm. or 74, when it was the, the FASB rule to make it expensed. But if you go back and read the literature, it was actually, obviously, they put out a bunch of things on this. There was a lot of debate about it. And they entertained three or four different ways of treating R&D, including capitalizing it or setting up guidelines for what should be capitalized and what should be expensed and so on and so forth. And then in the name of, in quotes, conservatism, it was deemed to be appropriate to expense it. Mm. Um, but it's, I think it's pretty, probably pretty fair to say that now a lot of R&D spending should, should appropriately be th- thought of as an investment, right? So going back to the matching principle should be something that reflect, is reflected on the balance sheet and then amortized over some appropriate useful life. Um, so there again, there's another really interesting, relatively new paper just came out in the fall where a number of academics looked at trying to break this down a little bit more by industry. So, so you know, the, the, there is like in the quantitative investing literature, uh, kind of a rule of thumb, which is 30% of SGNA should be attached to investments. Mm-hmm. And that's, by the way, it's actually, as a rule of thumb, it's actually not horrible. But as you would imagine, there's just so much variance from one industry to the next, from one company to the next. That's a little bit of a blunt instrument. So what these guys did is looked at this by industry and not only assigned what percent of various SGNA items should be considered to be investment versus maintenance SGNA. They also uh, attached amortization periods, and, and the amortization period for R and D was something like five or six years, and for the other stuff is more like two and a half or three years, something like that. So what we did was we said, okay, and Amazon, as you know, is a gargantuan company, and they spend a ton of money on SGNA, and we said, all right, let's take a look at if we did the adjustments per this academic approach. And again, I'm not saying this is the right answer. I, I think it's a step toward mm. the truth again, but you know, we could debate about this, and I think there's a lot of work to be done still to pin this all down. But you see, those numbers are really substantial. So our our back of the envelope is it was forty four billion dollars, forty four billion. And now, of course, you need to amortize prior spending, so you have to amortize it. And so that amortization was about twenty five billion. So forty four minus twenty five that's nineteen billion. So nineteen billion is what we say ultimately their net income should be higher. By the way, leaving aside taxes because taxes are a big deal. Right. Their earnings last year were twenty one billion, right? So it's not quite doubling their earnings. But if you accept this adjustment on face value, it would say that their earnings should be roughly double what they actually reported, mm-hmm. right? And so that's that's a so we say that should be added back to operating activity. So that's and then the 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 forty four billion dollars would go into investing. So what we're saying is they're earning a lot more than people think, and they're investing a lot more than people think. And again, that's got repercussions about current profitability. But that investment piece also has repercussions about what you think the future prospects for for Amazon or any other company doing this kind of thing look like. So that's the calculation. And, you know, we've done this for a lot of other companies. We've done a lot of case studies, for example, for Microsoft. We're picking these, I guess, they're Seattle-based technology companies. I don't know why, (laughs) but we're picking these big companies. But 
But just to be clear, the and, and these are obviously big effects, but actually the effects are even more significant for smaller, younger companies, right? Because they're, they're earlier in their life cycles and they're even spending more on investments than the more traditional, more mature guys. The other thing I'll just say, Chris, which is a little bit of a, a side comment, but mm. I find fascinating that um, if you look at uh, tax revenues from corporations as a percentage of total federal tax revenue income, mm. From the 1950s to now, I mean, I think in the 50s, it was in the 20s or 30s. And today it's something like six or 7%. So we've had a radical yeah. decline in taxes paid by companies. And as you probably recall, in the 1980s, there was a big push toward using financial leverage, which would shield interest. Right. And so that was you know the leverage thing. But it turns out, I would argue that the greatest tax shield of the last 20 years has been these intangible investments. Hmm. And- to give you some sort of grounding, and, and I'm not going to give you the amortization numbers, but but our estimate is that intangible investments for the Russell 3000, so that's roughly called the, that's basically the U.S. public markets, was $1.8 trillion last year. And by contrast, CapEx was about $900 billion with a B. So intangible or double that of CapEx, right? So this is just a much, I already gave you that two to one ratio, but that's just a much bigger item. So that's shielding all that, that's the good thing is it's shielding all these taxes. And, and by the way, I would just say if I were, if I were a legislator and I wanted to make uh, the taxes go up, you change the accounting rules, allow companies or force companies to capitalize some of these intangibles and their earnings would go up a lot and their tax liabilities would go up a lot. Anyway, so that's a separate topic, but it's an interesting, super interesting development that I think is a little bit below the radar, but, but very meaningful, right? So companies yeah. like Amazon, now look, Amazon employs a million people, and they all the employees pay taxes, so they're they're clearly like yeah. There's an argument about revenues, but but by the same token, the fact that they've invested so heavily back in their business, in large part, not they also do a lot of capex, but large part in SGNA means that they've sheltered a lot or shielded a lot of uh, a lot of uh, uh, pre-tax profits. So it, the, another point you make is about market uh, is around marketable securities. But you say that's sort of open to debate. Maybe you could discuss a little bit um, what your thoughts are on that and why you're less sure about that. Yeah. And I, I'll just say that I went back to the original um, document on this from the late 1980s. And it says pretty specifically that purchases or sales of other securities, and I think it's maturities of three months or more, should be recorded in investing activities. I think at the time, well, I know at the time cash balances were substantially lower than that, what they are today. And it wasn't considered cool to be sitting around with billions of dollars of cash on your balance right. sheet, right? And there, it actually, the, the, the cash balances today, I think tie very much to the intangible story. So that those are intertwined. Yeah. Um, so I actually think today, the, the question I would say is something like this, which is, are companies, uh, are these really investments or are these essentially proxies for cash, right? Mm -hmm. They're just, their cash balances or cash and marketable securities. So the st traditional statement of cash flows is reconciling for cash and cash equivalents. The question is, should we reconcile for cash, cash equivalents, restricted cash and marketable securities, right? So it just throws more into that mix and pulls out that we're buying treasury bills and selling treasury bills with six month maturity or nine month maturity or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. By the way, these are all current assets, right? So they're right. all going to be maturities of less than 12 months. So, so that's the debate. So, so if you felt strongly, and by the way, for large technology companies, I think you'd, you'd be hard pressed to make this case. But if you argued strongly that no, no, they, you know, this is actually they are making investments and this is part of their, you know, value of their business and so forth. 
I think it's not. I think most of these companies just have a lot of cash, mostly because other companies do it and they generate a lot of cash. And so they just let it sit around. I mean, the Apple numbers are stunning. Even the yeah. Amazon numbers are stunning. The Microsoft numbers are stunning. Berkshire Hathaway numbers are stunning, right? I mean, so these are just, these are, these are eye-popping cash balances, even adjusted for the size of the economy, so on and so forth, like we've never seen historically. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting you mentioned a couple companies, a couple of industries, you know, um, and obviously, you know, a lot of these proposals, you know, we talk about whether it's chicken or the egg, whether, you know, the dynamics of the economy change, you know, the, the, the accounting priorities are back and forth. But, um, I guess my question is, um, you know, is it just technology companies? Do you see this having the, uh, biggest impact? Because you mentioned Berkshire Hathaway, which obviously, you know, is mainly an insurance company, but, um, where do you see the industries that would have the greatest impact from any of these changes? Yeah, no, uh, Chris, it's a great question. And I think that there, and there's plenty of research on this, and I think it's actually quite intuitive, which is as you go from one industry to the next, there's a continuum of intangible capital intensity, right? Mm-hmm. So as you point out, things like technology and probably sections of healthcare and so forth, software, right? They're all going to be very int- intangible asset intensive. And by contrast, as you point out, more traditional brick and mortar businesses, energy businesses, auto manufacturers, although they're transitioning as well, are going to be much less related to intangible. So it's a continuum. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just think that as the world the world is tilting more toward these intangible businesses, and that's why I mentioned, you know, when we look at the top 10 market capitalization companies today versus 20 years ago, it's a it's I mean, Microsoft's on both lists, but every every other company is different. And for the most part, those companies that are on today's list are much more related to intangible assets. Those are going to be the primary drivers. So I think it is, like you said, I think it's, I don't know if it's a chicken and egg thing. I think the intangibles are driving this. And I think that the accounting profession is struggling to keep up with it. Mm-hmm. Now, again, you you asked the question before, which is the exact right one, which is, does anybody, should anybody care about this? You know, so we write this report, should anybody care mm. if the mar- if the data are out there and so forth, we can sort it all out. And that's, that's a valid, that's a valid comeback. Maybe the market figures it all out and people are doing right. these calculations already or they're doing it somehow magically. But um, I prefer just as a, as an investor myself or as an educator to try to think about the topics clearly. Right. And so this yeah. I think helps just f- frame things in a way that's more concrete, more, correct and uh, allows us to have, I think, more fruitful discussions and debates. Yeah, no, I see. And I see that point, especially from the investor side, you know, that you're getting all these signals. And if they're not clear or clarifying signals, you know, it's tough to make a decision. But let me ask you on the opposite side of that. Right. So there are the signals that the investor community is getting. Then there's the signals that the management community is getting. Um, Do these have the same sort of like confusing or not confusing, but like, do you see management sort of, uh, you know, understanding what these issues are or, uh, and make, making sound decisions based on that, or are they in the same boat as the investors where it's sort of noise and may have to filter it out? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a, as, as everything, there's a continuum there as well, right? Some companies I think are very astute on this and others are not quite as plugged into it. And so, um, it's an interesting question, for instance, Next time you talk to a financial executive, just ask him or her a simple question, which is of your SGNA, how much of it is discretionary investment mm. and how much it is is maintenance required to operate the business today? Just ask them the question. 
And, you know, I had a conversation, for example, with the chief marketing officer of a very, very large um, consumer products company, former chief marketing officer. And I asked him this question. He's like, that's just not how we think about it. Right. Yeah. We just have these gargantuan budgets and we, we move money around and so on and so forth. So um, now that said, I think that the, the reason the, the imperative, I think, for, for executives as well as investors is at the end of the day, one of the key tasks of an investor, uh, of an management team is to allocate capital thoughtfully, right? And, and, and allocate capital intelligently. Now there's human capital. So we'll, we'll leave that aside. Oh, that's by itself a very important set of issues. But in terms of financial capital, how we spend our money so as to generate the, the, the best long-term returns for our shareholders. And uh, I, I would just argue that it's very difficult to make those decisions thoughtfully without the kinds of uh, kinds of adjustments we've just talked about. So that would be my plea would be, I think it gets you in a better place to think about capital allocation in a more intelligent fashion. So here, here uh, I left the last question to the $64,000 question, which <laughs> is where do you think, you know, standard setters, or where do you think FASB is on, on, the, on these issues or what's your, what's your feeling? Well, my sense is, and I, I'm not close to much of this, but I think that for the most part, so they're, they're kind of, they're, uh, I, I think that mostly that financial standard setters are tend to be fairly conservative mm. and, um, and hence slow to move. And uh, I think that, again, there, the changes we've seen in the last 10 or 15 years have been very rapid. You know, I, again, I mentioned that the statement of cash flows that we know now, it was not put into place until 1989 or 88 or something, right. like 89, first quarter of 89. I mean, that's relatively recent, right, in terms of, of all these kinds of things. So, um, yeah, and there's there's a litany of issues, you know, like here, here's an example that I find interesting. Increasingly, there are companies that are subscription-based businesses, right? And these are like the SaaS companies and so on and so yeah. forth, right? Software as a service. And so the way the business works is you spend money to acquire a customer, so they call it customer acquisition costs, and then you sign a contract and then you have a stream of cash flows into the future, right? But again, you're expensing your customer acquisition costs and then your cash flows are coming down, down the road in, in the future. So it can be an, it can be obviously NPV positive, NPV negative, or NP, NPV zero, neutral. So the question is, how should we think about that from an accounting point of view? It's a really interesting question, and the problem is from a disclosure point of view, companies are all over the place how yeah. they calculate their customer acquisition costs, how they calculate their churn, how they calculate their retention, how they calculate all, and so there's no uniformity. And and whether we could hammer out some sort of uniform set of standards maybe is is, is open to question, but. Um, everybody's doing it on their own, right? So again, a little bit of the wild west. So I, by the way, I, t I, I want to just be clear. I tell all my students, this, this is like exciting. Right? It's such exciting <laughs> yeah. if you're an investor, yeah. right? because if you, if you sort of, you know, uh, apply a little bit of elbow grease and try to really understand things better than a little bit better than the next guy, um, you may, you may be able to glean a couple of insights that are really important. And again, I think there are usually executives within organizations that also get this stuff. So you might find executives that are sympathetic to this that can give you some insights that are very valuable. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that's a satisfactory answer to your question, but I, I think that account, by and large, the account, the standard setters tend to be conservative and slow, and we're, we're clearly behind where we need to be to reflect what is today's economic reality. Great. Terrific. Those are my questions. I really want to appreciate I appreciate you taking the time today to discuss it. It's very my important. pleasure, Chris. Thanks for being with you. Thanks for the pleasure to be with you.